Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of a Light Unto My Path podcast. I am your host Howard Sides and uh, we're continuing in our study today in the letter to the church uh, at Pergamos and we've uh, each one of the letters so far what we've been doing is kind of splitting it in two parts at least. The first part would be the the history of the city, uh, talk about the economics, the culture, the politics, the religion, any any of the background information that we have uh, that gives us a little insight into what the letter to the church is kind of talking about. And then the actual letter itself, we're breaking it down and, and looking at the spiritual um, application of it. <laughs> Lost my train of thought there for a moment. Uh, the spiritual application of it, and we're about halfway through this um, spiritual application, if you will, to the uh, letter to the church at Pergamos, and I guess I could say uh, <clears throat> one reason for that is uh, the first two letters, uh, you know, there are issues in the church, but I, I don't want to downplay them, they're, they're not that minor, Uh but spiritually speaking, they are minor compared to uh, some of the issues we're about to have later on. Now, as it will, there is a division, um, a paragraphical separation, if you will, between these first three letters, the letter to Ephesus, uh, the letter to Smyrna, and the letter to Pergamos. These three churches pretty much uh, are in line. Uh, they're doing... Um, okay, I'm not going to say they're doing perfect, they're not doing everything right, each one of them, uh, and part of the reason they get a letter uh, from the Lord is he has something that he wants to cover with them, there are problems, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but after these first three, uh, the, the problems magnify, I guess that's the best way to put it, so uh, we'll pick up today, um, and we'll read this uh, the verses that cover this letter to the church at Pergamos, and then we'll pick up where we left off, kind of do a uh, maybe a little bit of background of what we've covered so far, okay? All right, uh, so we're in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and this letter uh, is covered between verses 12 through 17, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Verse 12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, 
and will give him a white stone, uh, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Okay. All right, and uh, the first part, verses 12 through 13, uh, talks about the, uh, the faithful Christians in this church. The faithful Christians in this church. And it talks uh, about the lo their loyalty to the Lord's person and then, secondly, to loyalty to the Lord's precepts. Loyalty to the Lord's person and then loyalty to the Lord's precepts. And we're going to pick up today in verse 14. Uh, with the second thought here, and this is the false creeds in this church. The false creeds in this church. And the first one is talked about in verse 14 here, where it talks about this doctrine of Balaam. Now, this is uh, what I would call an outward-looking heresy. An outward-looking heresy. And the next one, the second one that's talked about, is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans talked about in verse 15. This is an inward-looking heresy, an inward-looking heresy. Now, with the first one, the doctrine of Balaam, this outward-looking heresy, uh, they have this concept of basically let's be more relaxed in our loyalties. In other words, let's not be so steadfast and focused on the Lord. Yeah, we can focus on him mainly, but, you know, we can look at some other things. Uh, the second one, the inward-looking heresy, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans, uh, has this concept of let's be more restricted in our leadership. And, and we'll get into that a little bit more in detail. But let's look at this first one, first of all, this uh, verse 14, the doctrine of Balaam. Okay, uh, and the verse starts off, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, it's... It, it doesn't say that they followed Balaam directly, but rather used the very same methods towards the same goals. And the story of Balaam, if, if you're not familiar with it, it is covered in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 25. Chapter 22 through 25. Um, a, a basic overview of what's going on. Uh, Israel is still coming through uh, their wilderness journey. Uh, they have not reached the promised land yet. They're still traveling through. And they, um, verse 1 of chapter 22 actually says, and the children of Israel set forward and pitched uh, in the plains of Moab on this side, Jordan, by Jericho. So they're right at the point of entering, okay? Um, and that pitch just basically means they pitched their tents there. And... Uh, Everybody in the area, of course, now, uh, we, we've, we've probably not talked about this uh, that I can recall, but here's the, uh, a nation wandering through a wilderness, an entire nation, and some best guesstimates put it between two and three million people, uh, maybe even four million people. Uh, it, it's not a small group of people. Uh, but they have no nation. Of course, they were in bondage in Egypt. They've left, and, and Christ is leading to them to where you know he had promised them he would take them to. But you can imagine a volume, uh, a group of people this size, everywhere they go, every surrounding nation is standing up and paying attention. Now, 
if they were just wandering and, and not having any effect and they're kind of traveling around countries and, and this sort of thing, it probably wouldn't be much notice. But the Lord has on several occasions up to this point uh, protected them in battles. Now, now the concept here that you have to understand is this nation came out of bondage from Egypt. A, they had no military. B, they had no military training. Uh, C, they probably didn't have much in the way of weapons to begin with. Now, the Bible is clear that when they did leave Egypt, uh, a lot of the people in Egypt gave them things to leave with. Uh, most of it uh, is the gold and the silver and the bronze and things like that that they ended up using to, to as uh, materials for building the tabernacle. I, I've done a study on the tabernacle and the, their journey up to the point of the tabernacle and all that. And I don't recall anything in there of any weapons that they had. Now, I'm sure at this stage, I'm sure they had spears and, you know, makeshift weapons, that sort of thing. Uh, they did have a military leader in Joshua. He was basically the general of the army, if, if, you, if, if you would call it that. I, I mean, they did have a fighting force, uh, people to defend their families and that sort of thing. But it was more of, um, if you think of the American militia. The, in um, America in the Revolution, the militia. It, these, these are farmers and, and blacksmiths and things of that nature that, that were fighting for their homeland. They were not a trained military group. Uh, and, and that's kind of the picture you have here. But as they were coming through the wilderness, several times God has had to protect them. They have had to fight battles against nations. And so as they're moving along, uh, nations that they would be approaching are, are paying attention. And one of them that says here in verse two, and Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Well, there's your first clue that they had this fight with the Amorites and Israel was successful by way of God fighting their battles for them. And Balak understands, uh, we're in trouble. We got to do something to stop them before they get to us. And if you want to get a picture of, of uh, the condition, if it, right there in Numbers chapter 22, verse 3, it says, and Moab, of course, Balak is the king of Moab. It says, and Moab was sore afraid of the people. They were scared to death of these people uh, because they were many. But it wasn't just because there was many. I, I, the, the size of the people doesn't matter. It, it's the, their gods what they're afraid of. Uh, and the verse goes on, it says, because they were many, and Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And, <clears throat> okay, so here, here's the point. Uh, Balaam is a prophet in that area. Okay, he is an actual prophet in that area. Balak goes and tries to bribe this guy and says, hey, we need to find a way to trip these people up. We need to break up this harmony that they have with their God, or, uh, you know, we got to put a curse on them or a hex on them or something. And at first, Balaam refuses, uh, and he keeps at it, and eventually what happens is Balaam agrees to do it. And, and as he goes on, he, he is actually successful. Um, I should have read it, kind of rehearsed a little bit, but um, here, here's, what, here's where we end up, okay? If, Numbers chapter 25. And, and, and 
as I read this, uh, Numbers 25, verse 6. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, in um, the book of Leviticus for sure, and in Deuteronomy for sure, God specifically tells them that they are not to mix with the other nations. And, and God was so firm upon this not mixing of the nations that he even told uh, the 12 tribes they were not to intermarry between the 12 tribes. And this was not a, a racial intention. It was not a nationalist intention. It was not a, a purification of bloodline thing. Well, it might have been a little bit of that, but, but here, here's what it boils down to. Okay, there are 12 children that became the, the father, the patriarchs of these 12 tribes. Each one of these men <clears throat> had a name that corresponded with a duty that he and his descendants had a, a job, if you will, in the nation of Israel. Uh, one was to be the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Uh, another was um, the sons of Levi, who were to be the priesthood. All the priests came out of his uh, descendants, that sort of thing. And, and what you come into is, is the marriage uh, uh, culture and, and the... Uh, Oh, I can't think of the word. Um, their traditions. There we go. Their their culture and their traditions all had where, uh, you know, many of these families would live together under one roof. So you'd have the patriarch and several sons and things like that living. And, and you wanted to marry a wife that was very closely in line with, with how your family worked, how your family uh, worship the uh, the the job they had in the tent, the way that the tabernacle was set up, each family had a specific uh, location to set their tents around that tabernacle. When it says that they traveled and and they pitched their tents, it wasn't okay. We stopped and they'd run out and you know first come first serve. No, they each had a very specific location. Uh, the tribe of Judah was here. The tribe of Manassas was there. The tribe of Issachar was over here. The tribe of Dan was there. Uh, Ephraim here, Gad there, Reuben there, Simeon there. And, and if you had a um, a son from the tribe of Reuben uh, that was out one day walking and saw a daughter from the tribe of Gad and said, wow, boy, she's a, she's a looker. And they wanted to get married. They could not get married because think about it. He, as the son of the Reuben tribe, would now be pulling part of the bloodline in the daughter from Gad over into Reuben. Uh, there would be the intermediate. He, he may be over uh, visiting her family in the tribe of Gad when the trumpet of the Lord sounded for them to march. And, and when you're talking about a million and some people, it's not like they can jump in a taxi and hurry up and get home and pack up the tent and get ready to leave. They had to be in the area. Uh, everything had an order. And, and I don't want to get too far off of it, but back to what I was reading here in verses, uh, Six and Numbers twenty-five. Uh, one of the children of Israel, and that's how it starts. It's always one uh, trendsetter. 
uh, says, came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman. Okay, this is a woman of the Midianites. Well, the first thing you notice is uh, Media is not one of the 12 tribes. This is an outsider for sure. She is not an Israelite. She's from outside the tribe. So he breaks uh, that covenant that God told them, you know, they had to follow. And it's not that he just breaks this, but look at what it says in the next part of that phrase. It says, uh, it says, he came and brought unto his brethren, a Midianitish woman. He didn't hide her away in secret from everybody. It blatantly says, in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation. What we see here is there is no shame or recourse in what he's doing. Uh, he, he's adamant about it. And this was the success Balaam had that, uh, yes, I'm a, uh, an Israelite. I am a child of God. God is my God. But I'm bringing in this woman of media because I think she's a knockout. She's beautiful. And I love her. I love her. <laughs> and what's going to happen is now you're going to have to deal with the way this woman was raised. Uh, and that means that she's going to introduce the idols, the forms of worship, the culture, uh, the way they do things in media. That's what she brings in. And it's going to cause chaos. There is not complete and perfect harmony. All right. So <clears throat> if we'll go back into uh, Revelation where we're at, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit. Now, the summary of Balaam's doctrine is this, to bring any object between the soul and God, any object. Now, this could be an idol uh, in the form of, of a false god that they worship. Uh, it, that could be expanded to even include an idolized person. Uh, the world we live in today uh, seems to take uh, extreme measures in idolizing sports figures, athletes, uh, movie stars, um, all of that nature. And, and, I, and I'll be the first to tell you that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we use the word hero way too often. And what I mean by that is I, I was in the military, served in desert shield desert storm a lot of people come out of there being called heroes and i understand the concept of that um i really do believe that a lot of that was from the fact that many people in america remembered the days of the vietnam war and how america treated the american soldier sailor marine Coast Guard, all of the branches, they were hated. They were despised. And I think that had a little bit of uh, national pride in it in that there was this move to uh, idolize the military veteran, if you will. <laughs> I don't I'm having a hard time picking my words tonight, so you'll have to bear with me. But, but, but yeah, understand. And 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 people would call us heroes, and and I'll be honest with you, there were heroes there. I was not one. I was just doing my job. I joined the military, uh, not looking for money for college, uh, not looking for anything like that. I I joined 
because I wanted to protect my country. I wanted to serve. And I'll tell you, there were bad days in there, <laughs> but there were some great days, many great days. Um, I, I, I was part of some uh, pretty amazing things. God kind of led me down a path that I was able to witness some things and, and, and see some places that I would never have got to see, certainly on my own. Um, but I'm telling you, there, there was just something about putting that uniform on. I, I can't even describe it. If you were in the military, you'd know what I'm talking about. I, I just, there was just something about it. Uh, I, when I put that uniform on, I, it, it, it altered me. It really did. It altered me. And having said that, uh, I, I certainly, I didn't feel like I was a hero. I was just doing my job. There were heroes there. Uh, there are heroes today. Uh, I know we call the, uh, the police and the fire and, uh, paramedics and medical field, especially in this day of the China virus. And yes, I know it's called the coronavirus, but let's face it, it did come from China. That's a whole nother story, but it was, and, 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 and the things they have to do and, and the dangers that they do face because there, I, I, I personally do believe there isn't danger in this virus. It, it is deadly. Uh, there's, there's no doubt of that. Uh, but it's so highly politicized. You just, uh, there's so much information going in all so many different directions. You really just don't know what to believe about this whole thing. <laughs> I mean, really. But uh, hero is still a tech, a term that is not held to the highest of highest standards. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to say that there is hero worship, okay? I don't want to get too bogged down with that. I, I do believe that we do have a lot of heroes today. We do have a lot of heroes in the military. Um, but I personally, I just did not feel like I was one. And, and that that's my point, okay? Uh, going on. So I'm chasing that rabbit a long way down the trail. So, uh, again, the summary of Balaam's doctrine is this, to bring any object between the soul and God. And one of those is an idol or an idolized person. Uh, there could also be a cherished uh, thing. Uh, it could be a um, kind of kind of like what's going on here. Uh, this boy somehow traveled outside the bounds of where Israel were was, or either this Midianite woman somehow came into the camp near the camp, yeah, somewhere he he saw her and just knocked his socks off. He really thought she was something. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been so adamant about just parading her right in front of the leader of Israel, Moses, and all the people. So uh, this is a cherished person. Uh, it could be a cherished thing. And, and a lot of people have cherished things today. It could be their truck. It could be their car. It could be their baseball card collection. It could be their collection of books. It could be a collection of art. Uh, <clears throat> it could be a vocation. I, uh, Me and my dad uh do uh woodworking and I, i'm telling you the truth i could make uh i start to say i could make a living doing it <laughs> and that's hard to do by in and of itself i could do it all day long let's put it that way i, I love creating stuff out of wood uh, the different colored stains that you can put on it to make the different colors uh, uh i i have 
Dremel tools. I, you know, they make letters and shapes and things like that. I, I just love the experience with wood. And and no two pieces of wood are alike. Uh, the grain in it uh, turns different ways. It, it, it can uh, be the same from the same tree, but two pieces of wood can have a little different uh, darker hue to it or a lighter hue to it. Uh, the knots that are in trees, you know, it just brings out so many different things. But that I could let that become a cherished thing that comes between me and God. Um, another thing is a secret ambition. Um, some dream, some goal that you have. And when you come so become so focused on it that it takes the place of the time that you should spend thinking of God, reading his word, or praying, uh, that becomes an obstacle between your soul and God. And basically what happens is in the end, God is robbed of both worship and service. Worship and service. Uh, now the next phrase there in verse 14, it says, Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel? Now Balaam taught Balak. If you corrupt them, then God will have to punish them. And if God punishes them, then their numbers will diminish and the threat against your kingdom will decrease. That's basically what Balaam taught Balak. And if there's ever a person who defines this term that we hear in the Bible of a sheep or a wolf in sheep's clothing, this guy, Balaam, uh, defines that term. Uh, he is definitely a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, it does say he's a prophet. And in the fact that he is a prophet, uh, he knows just enough of what God has said to know where to find the faults in the people. He knows what God has said. He knows how the people act. He, know what, he knows what they react to. And so in teaching Balak, hey, if you corrupt them, and God will have to punish them. Usually when he punishes them, he kills some of them off and this sort of thing. Uh, and, and their numbers will decrease. So the worse that you corrupt them, the more of them God will kill off. Uh, and that's basically what it said. So he was basically teaching uh, Balak how to abuse the government of God. That's what Balaam did. He abused the government of God. And, and the Old Testament and the New Testament are divided this way, whereas the Old Testament focuses on the government of God. The New Testament focuses on the grace of God. And just as he abused the government of God back then, today we have people who abuse the grace of God. And you may ask the question, well, is one worse than the other? Uh, and you have to look at it this way. God looks at sin as sin. We ourselves, when we look at sin, we try and categorize it. Well, because I tell a lie, I'm not as bad as the person who goes out and kills somebody. We try to categorize and rank sin as some are far worse than others. Uh, God still looks at sin as sin. It's all together. <laughs> so uh, th they're equal in, in their abuse whether it's the government of God or the grace of God. They're both bad. They're both considered sin. Okay, so, <clears throat> excuse me. This is basically how he uses the wisdom of this world 
um, to corrupt these people in casting this stumbling block before the children of Israel. And in the next phrase, we'll see how he uses the worship of this world. Uh, in, in that next phrase, it says, uh, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And basically, uh, how Balaam did this was he taught Balak, if you involve them in idolatry, then judgment will be quick. All right, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, uh, Balaam taught Balak. Again, if you involve them in idolatry, then judgment will be quick. Now, how that happened was Balaam knew that idolatry was an abomination in God's eyes, and to include Israel was to bring about punishment. Again, we have involved idolatry and pagan rituals and symbology and even the most fundamental of churches today. Uh, they've been so integrated uh, and not dealt with that after a while we've forgotten. And here's what I'm talking about. Now, when Constantine uh, took over as emperor of Rome, on half of Rome, and then he ended up being emperor of all of Rome, uh, he ended Christian persecution. Uh, he gave the bishops of the church huge buildings to convert into churches. And most of these buildings were used in pagan rituals. Uh, some of them were temples. Uh, I, we just talked about in, in the, I think, the first episode of this Pergamos letter, the church of Pergamos was actually in a building that was a, an old converted temple. Uh, so that, that's another example of how they start this stuff. So Constantine gave the bishops of the church huge buildings to convert into churches. He also gave them huge amounts of money to get to decorate them. Uh, then he supplied the best clothes, clothing available for robes to be used so that they would be uh, well-clothed. And so then, uh, when they were established comfortably, things were set up just right, and they felt safe. Then he introduced his own version of worship. He started altering things the way he wanted to see it. Uh, some of those were sensuality was introduced into worship. Uh, preaching characteristics changed. And also great pagan festivals were integrated to please the pagan members of the congregation. And it also actually was used to attract even more of them. So it was not only to... Uh, satiate the pagans that were actually sitting on the bench in these churches, but it brought more of them in so that they had an even larger influence on, on how things operated in the church. Now, I know immediately you're saying, well, what are you talking about, these pagan festivals? That, that, that just can't be. And, and as we go through the book of Revelation, I, I'll show you that there are more and more and more uh, of these things. But, but one example of a pagan festival uh, that was integrated was uh, one that's uh, recognized around the world today. It's called Winter Solstice. Winter Solstice. Now, the Winter Solstice, is, it falls on December the 21st. This is the shortest day of the year. And the day begins to lengthen again on the 25th. Now, what this day is for in, in, in its originality, okay, it was a pagan festival that recognized the birthday of the sun god, S-U-N, sun god. Uh, celebrations included a huge festival, including a, a, a large circus in Rome. Uh, it was a huge festival. And we have festivals today, you know, so you know what I'm talking about. But uh, within a certain amount of time, it was found favorable to change the birthday of the son of God to the 25th of December. 
Does it say anywhere in the Bible when, as a date, he was born? It doesn't say. All, all we know is that it says that it was the time of taxes. Um, ours is in April. <laughs> it may have been that time of year. Who knows? We may have set our date based on this uh, Roman system of, of paying taxes. So we, we really don't know when Jesus' birthday was, but, but it was decided in this time, right after Constantine, to set it on the 25th of December. And the reason was that since he is the son of righteousness, S-U-N. He is the son of righteousness. He is the light of righteousness. And how appropriate it would be to worship the son of God, the S-O-N, son of God, and the pagan son God, S-U-N, at the same time. And I, I mean, it's so easy to argue this uh, f from the fact of uh, not not for my opinion, but but how I could see how they could argue. Well, instead of having two festivals and paying all this money, let's just combine them together. You know, if you have an issue with worshiping the pagan god, then that's fine. You worship uh, the winter solstice as Christmas. If if you don't have an issue with it, then worship it as the as a pagan sun god. So, and you know, so that's the argument, and that's how it would start. And eventually, somebody's going to wear down. And it's usually the Christian that wears down and lets it happen. Uh, another example of a pagan festival that was uh, introduced right after this time was Easter. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a whole lot more detail later, but here's one that you probably don't know about. And we see this everywhere. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised, but then again, I'm not really that surprised. I see a lot of people drive around with vehicles or, or maybe even with uh, T-shirts or things with this fish symbol on it, this fish symbol. And, and it's supposedly become a Christian symbol. And so people put this decal on the back of their car, this picture of a fish, and not even realizing that it started out as a symbol of Dagon, the fish god. That was a Babylonian god, Dagon. And that picture of the fish that you see, that's the exact same symbol that was a pagan symbol that was used to represent Dagon, the fish god. And people putting them all over their cars and, and Bible covers and t-shirts and necklaces and things and have no idea that what they're wearing around their neck represents, in fact, a pagan festival. <laughs> that, that, that That's the truth of it, but... I do know, that, you know, and we'll go into some more later on, but I'm just trying to give you an idea of what, what how Constantine uh, got the Christians to relax and then enforced his will upon them, okay? So, uh, so we see in the first part there that they used the, he used the wisdom of this world, then he used the worship of this world, and then thirdly, he used the wickedness of the world. Uh, and that's in the last phrase in that verse. It says to commit fornication. Uh, Balaam taught Balak how to persuade Israel to commit fornication. And we've seen it right there in that verse I had in Numbers uh, 25, wasn't it? Yeah, Numbers chapter 25 and verse 6. Uh, this this man brings a Midianitish woman right into the camp. And it's not like he marries her and hides her away in the tents. So nobody knows about it. Um, he's parading her out not only in front of the congregation, but right in front of Moses' face. It specifically says in front of the eyes of Moses himself. 
So Balaam knew and taught Balak that if he could persuade Israel to commit fornication by intermingling with some of these outsiders other than Israelites, or even to get them basically to start maybe like that example I used, you know, a son of uh, Reuben uh, tribe meeting a, a daughter of the Gad tribe and, and intermarrying. Yes, there are both Israelites, but it was against God's commandments to them. They were not to intermingle, but they were not to mix uh, marriages between even the tribes under the umbrella of the nation of Israel. And, and it's basically, God knows how we are. Uh, he knows that if, if he gives us an inch, we're going to try and take a mile. Uh, that's just our sinful nature that's within us. That's, that's what's going to happen. Now, <clears throat> Balaam, uh, the bait that he used was this. Uh, some wicked practices of the world uh, were not really sinful or at best not as sinful as others are. And, and, and that's kind of how this thing starts. Uh, if, if you took where Israel was coming through the wilderness, they, they had the law, they knew what the law said, they'd seen time and time the examples of what happened when they did the wrong thing. And if you took somebody that was trying to do the right thing and said, hey, check out this woman for media. Uh, look how pretty this Medianitish woman is. Well, right from the bat, <clears throat> this guy is going to be like, no, we can't do that. You don't take a major step. That's not how Satan does that. Uh, these people that fall in the churches and, and you find out that they're having an affair and things like that, uh, they just didn't wake up one day and say, well, okay, I think I'm going to go have an affair with this person, whoever it is. Um, there, there's little seeds that are planted all along the way. And those seeds uh, become weeds. And if those weeds are not uh, pulled out, if your sins are not confessed, then they're going to grow and they're going to multiply and they're going to choke out the plant. And Balaam was smart enough to know uh, that if he could get them to cross the line just a little bit, eventually that's what would, go, what would happen is they would end up intermarrying some of these foreigners and, and bring them into the camp. And, and their... Uh, practices uh of course we know many of the cults include sexual immorality mm -hmm. as part of their religious worship so they would bring that belief system into the israelite camp and eventually it'd wear them down uh, that's just how it works so what we see here is that the doctrine of balaam was really an attack on the standards of separation and sanctification god expected israel to maintain he laid it all out in the, the book of law, in Leviticus, and in, again, the book of Deuteronomy. And they failed to keep that standard uh, of separation and sanctification. All right, now the second one, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans here in verse 15. This was the inward-looking heresy. Let's be more restricted in our leadership. That, that's the... Uh, uh, Codus of the group, if you will. That's, that's their, um, oh my goodness, I'm just having a hard time thinking of these things. <laughs> Y'all pray for me. Uh, this is their mantra, their, their mission statement, okay? Uh, let's be more restricted in our leadership. Okay, so the verse uh, starts off, it says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, he could have stopped right there. And, of course, we know this is Jesus Christ saying this. John's writing it, but this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ saying this. And he has this little phrase at the end. 
which thing I hate. Well, right away, you know how God feels about it. So notice how the subject changed in Ephesus from thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans in verse 6. Now, this is not the first time we've heard of this group. They're also in that church there at Ephesus, but well, not in the church, but they're in the letter. And he, and he mentions it to them that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. To here in Pergamos, where they have them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They've actually come and become part of the congregation in this church and are actually uh, practicing this Nicolaitanism movement. And the movement, basically the movement had grown and gotten stronger. Um, now, I've, I've, I've mentioned this, Nicolaitanism. Now, let's talk about it a little bit so you kind of know what I'm talking about. Uh, Nicolaitanism was a movement that claimed to be improving Christianity. Uh, and, and listen, there's groups today that may go under different names that, that basically are trying to say they're doing the same thing. They take what God gave us, what we call in our belief system as Christianity, and they're trying to improve upon it. And, and, and you'll hear me say this a lot. There are many people, many people walking around that claim to be so-called Christians when, in fact, the term means Christ-like, Christ-like. In other words, uh, as a Christian, we're only supposed to do the things that Christ would do. These people call themselves Christian, and they cuss like sailors. Uh, they drink like sailors. I don't know why everything's associated with a sailor. I guess they're the worst form of behavior, if you put it that way. But look, look, they, they cuss like crazy. They, they drink. They um party all during the week and then they show up on Sunday in, in their best looking suit and holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Uh, man, come on. That is that is not a Christian. And really, if you behave like that, then you cannot in any method, any form, call yourself a Christian. Really. That is not Christ-like. Christ did not act like that at all. Now, does that mean that we are perfect? The ones that are truly trying to live like proper Christians, we do fall. We do fail. But we do not practice these things as a habitual form. God just won't allow it. All right. So, uh, where they claim to be improving Christianity, how they did this was part of it. Uh, they took it upon themselves to appoint or become priests and clergy with the idea that because they had, quote, been called, unquote, they could lord over the people and do as they wish. They thought that, well, because the Lord called me to be a priest, I'm in command, I'm in charge. Uh, that's not how a shepherd operates, and that, that's how uh, Christ refers to it many times in the New Testament, as a pastor is, is a shepherd. Uh, Christ condemned this practice in the strongest of terms in Revelations chapter 2 and verse 6. And 15, where he says of their deeds and doctrines, which I also hate, and again, which thing I hate. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 8 through 12 also talks about this. Uh, he says there, Matthew 23, verse 8 through 12, he says, But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. We're all brothers. Verse 9. And this is the one that just lays it right out, plain. Verse 9, and call no man 
your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Well, all right, let's just be clear and plain about this. Uh, the Catholic religion have taught their uh, constituents, I guess you'd call them, or their their, their, their members uh, to refer to their priests, their uh, bishops, their cardinals, uh, the Pope, all as a father. They, they address them as a father. That is in direct contradiction to what Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 9. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Now, I don't know how you can make it any more plain than that. I mean, that that's not my words. Oh, that's not any man's words. That That's Jesus Christ himself saying that. Jesus Christ himself said that. And it goes on, verse 10, Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased or brought down to nothing. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. A.W. Tozer, the great preacher, used to say, and I quote, The way up is the way down. And the way down is the way up. That's the quote he used to use. That, that's pretty much what he's saying there. Uh, we're not to lord over our brethren. Uh, if you're called into a leadership position, and, and that could be as a teacher, as, as a deacon, as a preacher, as a pastor, as a missionary, uh, God never intended us to lord over the people. That's not at all what it is. We're in the same boat everybody else is in. We're Christians trying to live a, a life that is pleasing to Christ. And he has separated some to be shepherds. But we're not to, and it is a leadership role, yes. But we're not to be setting the doctrine, okay? We're exposing the doctrine that we've been given. Christ is the Lord. Our Father is God in heaven. It is their message it is their rules it is their way not ours okay so i, I hope that kind of clears it up so the catholic priest would use a latin translation of the bible where the people couldn't understand uh what they were saying and and as far as i know they still do this today um and and then they would tell the people what they should believe and by doing this, they were basically telling the people how they thought the Bible was in being interpreted. Uh, and and you see where uh, a priest could manipulate this in any form or fashion that he wanted. If he read something in Latin, uh, <laughs> a lot of these people wouldn't know what in the world he was saying. They would have to rely on this priest to explain it to him. And that's why if, if you've gone through the podcast I had on the history of the King James Bible, why everything out there fought against this translation. It was that by translating the Bible into the language of the common people where they could read the words of God themselves, those priests could not have control over them people anymore. They would come out and say, well, this is, and, and, and then, that, that person would have a Bible and say, well, th this is what I read. This is what God actually said, not what you say. 
And, and so that's why they uh, could could read this Latin translation and then explain it however they wanted it to fit into what they needed and corrupt. And, and by doing so, they were corrupting Christianity and also perverting the word of God. So you need to be careful in uh, uh, not translating the Bible. It's already translated in English, but but in ex, in your expo, expository talking, <laughs> ex, uh, in in the exposit exposition, I guess is how it is. Yeah, the exposition of the Word of God. You need to be careful in that. Uh, the, so the doctrine of Latinism, Nicolaitanism, pretty much by itself made. Uh, the Pope position possible. Okay? And we'll get into that a little bit more. Alright? <clears throat> Alright, so we have talked about the faithful Christians in this church, verses 12 through 13. Then there are the false creeds in this church, verses 14 through 15. And then the third point here is the fearful crisis in this church, verses uh, 16 and 17, the fearful crisis in this church. And the first part of that is talked about in verse 16, where it's talking about how the Lord warned the church. The very first word there in verse 16 says, repent. Now, repent in the Greek word is metanoio. Metanoio means to think differently or afterwards, reconsider, to morally feel compunction. And, and basically how we explain that today uh, is when you confess a sin and you repent, you change to a different path. You have been going down the wrong path. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to confess it. But once you confess it, you get back on the right path. Okay? It's not a lifestyle. We do make mistakes. We do mess up. And we do have the right, based on what Christ has told us, uh, that we can confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, all week long we can live like hell and the devil as it is. And then Saturday night or Sunday morning, we go and confess it and live like a Christian on Sunday. And then soon Monday morning, we walk back out the door. We're going right back. at That's a lifestyle. That is not repenting. That is confessing, but it's not repenting. In Latin, uh, the word is repoenitio, repoeniteo, which means to creep or crawl, but to creep. Uh, the re part of that word means to change ways and basically in a reverse direction. And, and, and we use that today as like to readjust or when we put re in front of things, we're, we're changing what the current status is. And the second part of that word, poenitio, is from the word poena, P-O-E-N-A, poena, which means pain. And basically, uh, that, that's a very clear uh, example of what repent is. Uh, in the Latin form of the word, to change ways or reverse direction from pain. What are we repenting of? We're repenting of sin. What does the Bible tell us sin does? Sin hurts us. It causes us pain. And to repent our sins is to change direction, to think differently afterwards, to go in a different direction. In the Latin, it basically means to go in the reverse direction. We've been going in the wrong direction, so we turn around and go in the right direction. 
So that's a full explanation of the word repent there. Uh, Psalms 51, 1 through 4 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Now in this passage, David mentions his sin in three ways. The first way he says to blot out my transgressions. The second way, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. The third way, cleanse me from my sin. So he mentions transgressions, he mentions iniquity, and he mentions sin. Now, these three views of sin. Uh, transgression is the Hebrew word pasha. Pasha means to violate the law of God. The word iniquity is the Hebrew word avon, avon, that which is not morally straight, is crookedness. And then the word sin in the Hebrew is katawal, uh, uh, katawal, it's, it's spelled C-H-A. T-T-A apostrophe A-H. So it looks like it's Chata'a, but it's Kata'a. So I guess that's how you pronounce it. It means to miss the mark. Uh, David says again, O God, I have violated your law. Or, or basically, this is what he's saying in verses 1 through 4 in, in, in our language today. He says, O God, I have violated your law. I have been crooked in my dealings and not morally straight, and I have missed your standard, your mark, and I want you to forgive me and cleanse me. That's basically what he's saying there. All right? Now, again, true repentance is to see our sin as God sees our sin and to treat it just like he does. That's true repentance. All right, now the next part of the verse says, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them. Now notice the pronouns that the Lord uses. I will come unto thee. And will fight against them. Now what he's saying here. Is that the Lord's fight is not against his church. But rather those who are defiling it. Um, he uses the word quickly. Which indicates little to no grace. Or a mercy period. And basically what he's saying here. Is Jesus is declaring all out war against them. All right. Okay, I've got about five minutes left, so I'm going to stop right there. Um, I can only record like an hour at a time, and I'll pick up uh, the next part in the next section, okay? So i got to hurry up and go, but uh, thank you for listening. I've been kind of a little foggy brain tonight. I don't know what the problem is unless I just didn't get enough sleep today, but I apologize for that. But I do thank you for your patience. I thank you for listening, um, and I certainly hope you got something out of it. Uh, have a great day or great evening, whenever it is that you're listening to this, and I hope God blesses you, okay? Thank you for listening. Join me again.